Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Dwell, a Cersei Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I'm Emily Hill and joining me are Karen Kern and Renee Mathis. Hey, friends. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So we've spent some time conversing over the past weeks about storytelling, whether that's reading and studying great books or sharing family stories, creating cultural memory or holding to our history and heritage, and even cultivating a calendar that reflects the good, true, and beautiful There's also several practical ways that we can cultivate this memory that can be woven into our school days and even everyday life. So we use that word, storytelling. What is that? The telling of stories. And today we're going to jump into a conversation about telling in a more practical way that forms our brains and our hearts and connects it to a deeper level of understanding. And that is the art of narration. Now, unless you are brand, brand new, which you may be to homeschooling, um, you've probably heard that term before, narration. And if you've studied Charlotte Mason, education principles or classical education, you'll have heard that word narration. But what is it? When we talked about the habits, we mentioned the habit of attention and how it's an important habit to cultivate. What does attention have to do with narrating and what is narration? So should I just throw that one out there to you of to you ladies? Like, what is narration? What are we talking about? You hear that word all the time. Well, narration in its most basic form, as you said, is telling, and it's related to the idea of narrator, or um, when we write essays, narratio, we're telling a story. So what narration is, is a telling back or, or repeating and telling a story. 
when we ask our student to narrate something, uh, we typically have given them a passage to listen to, and then we immediately ask them to to repeat it back to us. Not that we are asking them to memorize it word for word, although some kids do do that, um, but we just want them to tell us what they heard. And that idea of telling, I think when we start discussing narration, it sounds very complicated. And in fact, there's entire books devoted to it, which we are going to share the titles of those books because they are very, very helpful in helping figure out what are the practical steps, how do you do it? What does it look like in homeschooling, in the classroom? But simply put, it really is just telling, whether that's storytelling or telling back information. Um, but it does have a purpose. Why are we doing that? I'm Karen, I'm going to throw this one to you. Like, why do we narrate? What is the goal of it? Um, I think that the main goal would be to assess the student's comprehension of the material. So, and give them a way to interact with the material. That is very valuable. So for example, um, you know, you can easily get yourself literature guides that have been written with short answer questions, multiple choice, based on everything from uh, Trumpet of the Swan and Little House books all the way up to the Aeneid and the Odyssey and the Iliad. And you could assign your child, your student, your class to read a chapter in Little House or maybe read it with them and then copy or give them the workbook and say, here, you go ahead and answer these questions, um, which a lot of kids really, well, no, not a lot. Some girls particularly loves to fill out a workbook page. But how much more valuable is it to engage with that material together by reading it to them or having them read it and then say, tell it back to me. Because right away, if they are blank and they can't think of who it's about and what they did, then you know right then that they have not, they have not adequately engaged with it. They haven't comprehended it and we need to do it again. But if they can tell it back to you and some kids can tell it back so clearly and um, in order and get all the details that they've got it then. And then because you know they've got it, then you can go into the ideas of it and say, um, do you think that character should have done this? Or um, how, what, how does this story strike you? Or how do you respond to this? You can, you can have conversation about the ideas because you are confident that they've understood it. So to me, that's the first and the main benefit of narrating. And it's almost as if each mind has its own library. And as you go along through your education, your lifelong education, you're like growing the library of your mind. And I've seen this happen in my own children and in the classroom and with my own self. When you narrate, you, you have to put the text into your own words because you hear a passage and, you know, let's say someone reads a page out of a book to me and then I can't, narration is not memorization. I cannot remember the entire page, just verbatim. So what I have to do is I have to somehow put it into my own library. I have to put it into my own mind and how my mind works. And every child's mind works different. Um, I look at my four kids, their brains work so differently and they actually narrate very differently from each other. 
And that's one of the goals of narration is to, through the habit of paying attention and telling that back, you're adding that to your own library. You're building your library. And as you said, Karen, then you can keep the metaphor going. You can take that book off the shelf, open it up and say, oh, this is what it's about in there. Renee, anything to add to that in the goal of narration? I would say another real um, wonderful benefit of narration is that it's cultivating the habit of paying attention. So when children narrate, they, you're asking them, first of all, you're, you're kind of laying their groundwork and saying, okay, I'm going to read something to you, or you're going to read something, and I want you to pay attention to it, because I'm going to ask you to tell it back to me. So they know right away that there's an expectation that um, they need to listen, right? I mean, how many times have we sat in church or, or read a page in a book and, uh, you know, what was that sermon about? My mind was on the, you know, the, the tree outside the window or, or my mind wandered while I was reading and I, I got through two pages and realized I didn't, I didn't pay attention to any of it. So we all know, you know, as adults, that that's a very real thing that can happen to us. So we need to train our minds, right? And if, if we as adults know our minds need training, you know, of course, our children's minds need training too. And, um, and that's what narration can do. So we ask them, we expect them to pay attention. And then we ask them to tell it back to us. But it's very, I don't want to say low stress. Some kids will get a little bit stressed, especially if they're new to it. But it, it's a very, um, there's not a lot riding on it. They're not, in a, they're not in front of an audience of 50 people. They're not getting a grade on this. I'm just asking you to tell back to me what you heard. And, and Emily, I love how you said you're putting it in the library of your mind because two of my favorite definitions of learning, one is that learning is just connecting new stuff to old stuff, right? We have a lot of old stuff in our brain already. And when we take something in by paying attention to it, we connect it to what's there. And when we build those connections, we have learning taking place. Um, another way of describing learning is that it's the art of overcoming confusion. And anytime we're faced with something brand new that we don't understand how to do, of course, we're confused with that. But narration can help to eliminate some of that confusion in a couple of ways. First, I'm paying attention to it. I'm thinking about it. And when I tell it back to you, I am, I'm having to mentally kind of organize my thoughts and, and put it in, in a form that makes sense. And I want to make sure that you understand it. So in order to do that, I've got to smooth out some of those rough spots and I've got to overcome some of that confusion. But another way that it can help overcome the confusion, um, as Karen pointed out, if you as a teacher are listening to this narration, and there are some big gaps or some problems, um, it's not necessarily that, oh, the student did it wrong. It's that, wow, as a teacher, I may need to go back and reteach something. Maybe there are some gaps there that I need to remedy before we move farther. So every, it's a win-win situation for everybody. So you mentioned that narrations form the habit of attention or it requires attention. Why, like, why, is, why is paying attention so important? Why is attention important? Well, first of all, um, everything in our culture right now is warring against our ability to pay attention, right? We, we want the, we don't want to put in hard work. We, we, you know, we want the easy fix. We want the easy entertainment, push the button, touch of a button, reward right away. And um, everything is in quick little sound bites that, that don't ask us to pay long stretches of undivided attention. So our attention muscles as a society, I think we all agree, are very weak, um, and learning, true learning, the hard work of learning asks us to pay attention because when we attend to something, 
we're taking it in, right? And when we take it in, then we can process it and then we play with it and then we use it and then we figure it out and then we, we understand how it works and then we can then make use of it in other ways. So, you know, I can learn about how to, how to add negative numbers and play with it and practice it and understand the process. And then as a result of paying attention and processing, I can then do it. I can then answer the question on the math worksheet. So attention is really the foundation for learning. So if you think about attention as the foundation piece, what kind of branches off of attention? Well, there's memorization. That's part of learning. I mean, there are things when we learn, we just have to memorize. That's just the way it goes. Um, and you can't learn something, memorize something if you don't pay attention to it. Um, another way we learn is by imitation. And when I imitate, I also have to pay attention, whether that's imitating a teacher showing me how to how to spell a word, how to write parallel clauses, how to, um, how to diagram a sentence or, or work a math problem. I have to pay attention before I can imitate. So then when you combine imitation at the, or attention at the root, and then you learn how to imitate and how to memorize, those two together, you get learning. So it's, it's a beautiful process, but, but attention is definitely the foundation. And so uh, narration feeds that. And it's a wonderful skill for kids to have, starting when they're very, very little, all the way up to those of us as adults. Well, and the practice of narration, in some ways, is the meeting of imitation and memorization. You are, in some ways, imitating and memorizing in this telling back way, not verbatim, by paying attention. And it's just an actual practical thing. I think sometimes it's a challenge as an educator to say, what is it that I can do practically that's not theoretical to encourage my students to learn? I cannot force some students to have high quality Socratic discussion. But narration is a practical skill that any, truly any student can do. Now, does that look like Different for different students, for sure. Um, and Karen, you were talking about this earlier of how narrations can contribute or influence other areas of study, because we often think of narrations like you narrate a literature text or you narrate your history book. Um, but how how could you narrate in other areas of study? Well, I think that by putting words to whatever the student is being asked to do. So for example, I would, um, when I was teaching third grade and we were doing long division, which can be um, complicated. And there were a lot of tears um, when I, in learning long division. Um, but when I could have a student come up to the board and narrate exactly what they were doing all the way through the program, problem and as they're writing it on the board and you know subtracting and bringing down the next number and dividing and multiplying and all that goes into that and they're talking it through and the other students are hearing that child talk it through and watch it it's reinforcing it by by all you know so many more senses as they're speaking what they're doing um the same thing in in doing an art or a craft or if I'm teaching my grandchild how to knit and I'm, I'm telling with words and they're hearing me explain it and they're watching me um, and then they're telling that back to me. Or if I'm cooking with Coulter and he's, you know, he's reading the recipe and he's 
narrating, okay, now I'm going to take a quarter cup of sugar and I'm going to put it in there. So when they're telling what they're doing and what they're learning, you just how it reinforces. The they're just adding it, adding it to their library. Yeah. Adding. And hopefully it's going to, hopefully and it's going to stay there. <laughs> um, you know, jump in and say that it, it very young children can narrate and it's, it can be a very, very simple process. And yet older children, when they're doing written narrations and um, you're, it's very formal, you know, you, you have a very different outcome. But it's still this, it still requires the same thing of a student to pay attention and then to produce either something spoken or something written or maybe something drawn. Like um, I remember reading in Little House in the Big Woods, the portion about what the attic looked like in the fall and where Ma would put the pumpkins and the radishes. If you remember that story well, um, you know that it forms a picture in your mind. And then I would read it and then I say to my students, okay, draw that, draw what you just heard. So there, they can do a drawing, they can do a, you know, a written or they can speak it lots of different ways. Well, and that's a good reminder because often in a formal setting, we hear narration. And when we hear that, we think they're speaking something or they're writing something. And those particular skills are actually very important and should be cultivated and can formally be cultivated. But I remember the first year of the apprenticeship when Matt Bianco put a, um, a famous art print in front of us. So we all had like a copy of this famous art print and, you know, we were able to look at it for whatever, 90 seconds, something like that. And then we turned it over and he said, narrate that. Like, what did you see? And it comes again back to what Renee is saying. He really was asking us, how much were you able to pay attention and how paying attention is a skill that can be developed. So we did that exercise and then we did it with another one. And then we, he put an art print in front of us and we turned it over and he said, now draw that art print. And we all kind of freaked out a little bit. Like, oh, I can't draw that art print. Um, and that's a good reminder. I'm sure you ladies have been in this scenario too of um, when you are asked to narrate and Karen, you even mentioned you were reading along with some students and you narrated along with them. And a reminder of how challenging it is to narrate. The skill of narration is hard. So remember that when you are asking your student to narrate, you're asking them to do something that's challenging and applaud them for that. I know this can be difficult, but you're doing a great job. I'm really proud of you for what you remembered on that. I know I've totally fallen into the homeschool mom like, I just, okay, I'm just gonna read this chapter to you and you just narrate it back to me. All right, let's get your narration done. We just got to get that narration done. Um, Cause it's, my kids do several narrations a week. It's part of their formal curriculum. And it's easy just to push them through that and forget the purpose of this is to learn to pay attention. So what about the difference between formal narration? We've kind of talked about that a little bit as far as in oral narration of them telling it back of something that's been read or they've seen a written narration, which students progress into that. Usually you start when they're younger with oral narrations and then they kind of progress or grow into these written narrations. But what about informal narrating? Like what could that, what could that look like in your home in a school setting? What's the difference between formal and informal narration? 
I'll give you an example of, of informal narration that I have that I've used. I was leading a Bible study with women at church. And so we incorporated narration into the into the Bible study. So we would have somebody uh, read, read the passage and we were doing the book of Luke. So, you know, it's, it was all stories, mostly stories. And so we would do one story at a time. We'd get together and we would read it. And then we would have the women in pairs narrate it back to each other. And the hardest thing about that was that they were so tempted to insert into the narration how they felt about it or how it spoke to them or, you know, and this is what I get out of it or this is my question. And I remember, I think maybe because we're, you know, grownups, women, that we felt like we could just insert that into the text and we'd remind them this isn't right now isn't the time to say how you feel about it. but let's just come to the text with a posture of you know i'm ultimately it's a posture of humility that the text is what we're talking about we're we're letting the text be the lesson here so let's let's learn exactly what the text is saying before we say what we think about that and that was so interesting to me that that, that was hard for them so and I would say another um, form of informal narration to build on what Karen just said, because when you read it and you're, you're narrating it back, you know, you're reviewing it, right? So one way we can ask kids um, to narrate informally is to, to review something with them. And so, I mean, I love starting out a lesson by telling my class, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to remind you of what you already know. You know, this is not something new. This is not something hard. You already know this. So remind everybody, you know, what did we talk about yesterday? Or what did we talk about in our last writing lesson or literature lesson? And you're just asking them to remember, which ideally, if their attention muscles have been strengthened, they will remember, you know, a lot of what they've learned, or they will remember some some nuggets that they can share with the class. So so one way to informally narrate something is just to ask, ask them to review or to recap something that they've previously learned. Well, and that's what you were saying earlier about learning is, what did you say? Learning is just connecting the old stuff and the new stuff or what? It was something like that. And I mean, that's what a a review narration does, right? I'm just like connecting, just connecting the dots. Um, But kids, kids actually narrate all day, every day. Some kids are more chatty about it, but you think you sit down at the dinner table and you say, tell me about your day. That's a narration right there. And in our home, we've actually encouraged the, we've almost added like a little bit of formality and made it like a narration practice of, you know, my daughter works at the zoo. So we'll say, tell us about your shift at the zoo, but start at the beginning and walk all the way through. And she's definitely my chatty one. So we do actually hear every single detail, none to be forgotten about the happenings at the zoo. Um, But even you can draw kids in who are not, maybe they're a little more introverted, a little more shy, not as talkative. That's okay. But you can walk them through. And then what happened? And then what did she say? And that's those small informal practices actually set them up for success in their formal narrations because they're able just through everyday life of how to chronologically walk through the details of something. And it's the details that are hard to remember. I mean, goodness, I forget all the details. But I'm always like, and then what happened? And then what did she say? And if you have teenage girls, 
they'll tell you what happened. <laughs> and it, maybe it's just learning those questions. Do you guys have any, um, any questions that you can ask to encourage narrations? There are actually like long lists of these questions out there to be had and we can put them on our Facebook okay. page. I've got a list of five questions. And these are these are great because these are the these are the five common topic questions that we all know and love. If you lost tools, if you haven't tossed lost tools, great. This is your introduction to Aristotle's five common topics. You can use these five questions to talk about anything, and so and like like Karen said, you don't need a literature guide every time you open up a book. Um, be at rest, moms. You know, take a deep breath, sit back on the couch, and enjoy your kids, knowing that you don't have to buy one more thing at the the book fair or the book sale. Um, you can just ask your kids to tell it back to you. And if you want to ask more questions to encourage more conversation, you've got the five common topics. So, and, and I'll put this on the Facebook page too. But in case you don't know, first one is definition. What kind of a thing is it? What is it? <laughs> Tell me about it, that thing. Uh, we can talk about comparison. How is it similar to this thing? How is it different from this thing? How are these two characters alike? How are they different? We can talk about circumstances. What's going on in this setting? What's going on in that setting over there? What's going on in that setting over there? Uh, just tell me what's happening in these different places. Um, and then the fourth thing is uh, relation, or you might think of it as cause and effect. That thing you just narrated to me, what caused that to happen? What happened before that thing? And what do you predict is going to happen after that thing? And then the last thing is testimony, which is what do other people have to say about X, Y, or Z? What did, what did another character think about this? What did this character think about that? What did the author think about it? Yeah. So those are just some very simple questions, but they will drive you deeper and deeper into whatever text you're reading. And that goes whether it's literature or history. You can ask those same questions about, you know, the Battle of Gettysburg. What was it? Define it. Where did it happen? What was the cause of it? What did people have to say about it? Um, how was it similar to the Battle of Shiloh? How is it different from the Battle of Valley Forge? So th these are just great questions and great questions lead to great conversations. So there you go. Yeah, and will you will you put those up on Facebook? That would be so helpful. I think you can sure. you know, then we can jot those down and you know, pull it pull it out of, you know, your pocket at the dinner table. <laughs> um and then Karen, maybe you can speak to this like in in light of answering those questions when a student is giving his narration or giving his her answer, how do you ensure that it's the student's own? And it's this is not this is not a right or wrong quiz? I think that you have to, first of all, be patient. Let them pause for a moment um, to think to themselves that even the most simple answer starts with who is this about or what is this about and what is being done or what is he doing? Um, and let them gather their thoughts for a moment. And sometimes that means asking the other students or children in the family to wait. And then once they start telling the story, um, nobody's allowed to interrupt and that they might make a mistake and get an, something that happened out of order or name somebody wrong or forget something significant. But usually by the time they're at the end of their narration, telling back their chapter or their story, they will fix that themselves and they'll say, oh, wait, no, I got that wrong. And they'll go back and fix it. And then when they're done, um, you can you can ask the other students or um, or if you're alone with that child, ask the leading 
ask a question that will maybe clarify or say, you know, is there anything else you maybe missed? Um, but, or give the other students a chance to say, you know, um, was there anything you would add to that? And then that way that child doesn't feel like they got it all wrong or that they're being attacked by their younger brother who has something to add that's more correct or, or whatever that they don't need to be in. It doesn't, in other words, they don't need to feel bad about it if they make a mistake, but um, it, give, it gives them a chance to think their thoughts and maybe correct them and not be uh, intimidated or afraid by the whole process that it doesn't have to be something anxiety producing. Yeah, and I think Renee had mentioned that before as well. Um, and you had said this earlier, Renee, and I just, I jotted it down because I thought it was so helpful. And we, we were kind of chit-chatting, you know, like, what do you do when you have a stressed child? I, I have a student of my own flesh and blood who narrations are very stressful to her. She's a bit of a perfectionist and she likes to get it right. And she can view narrations as a performance. So then when she doesn't remember, it's very stressful to her because she feels like she's not performing. And Renee mentioned this line of, I'm not asking you to do something you're not capable of. You do have this. And then breaking it down and maybe saying, all right, I'm going to read this passage. Tell me three things that you can remember. So they don't feel like, I have to remember this entire chapter. And then it's just gone. It's just nowhere in their minds at all. Cause all they can think about is the performance of it. Um, so I, I, I thought that was very helpful. Assure them. And um, to what you said, Karen, of making sure the other students are not sitting there. And usually this is siblings. We've had to walk through this. All right, this is her narration. This is not your narration. When your turn comes, you can say whatever you want, but leave her be. But communicating to them, this is for you and I've got your back and I, I want to make sure you succeed in this. Um, and there's actually a lot of other ideas. We're going to post a couple books um, on Facebook with ideas that practically walk through narrating. Actually, Cersei has a new book that's published, A Classical Guide to Narration by Jason Barney. Um, Karen Glass also has a really wonderful um, book for homeschoolers, um, Know and Tell that actually a lot of the things we're talking about today came from all of us reading these books um, and the practices that we have in, in our classrooms, in our homeschooling. But at the end of the day, remembering that narration is a process. It's all around us. It's formal, it's informal, and don't give up because it's truly, it's a relationship. Narration is a relationship between the student and the book, between the teacher and the student and even between the student and their own mind. So remember, when you are teaching your child or your student to narrate, you are, you're truly offering them a gift in this skill of learning to tell and to pay attention and to remember. All right, any last thoughts on telling or narrating? I'll just read this last paragraph maybe from the book, A Classical Guide to Narration, because I think it's a good reminder of what our goal is in education, um, even as a whole. Charlotte Mason believed that narration was more than just an effective learning strategy. Narration is how a person's mind appropriates through the mediating influence of the Holy Spirit 
the ideas and truths that have been made available to us in the tradition of wisdom and knowledge. Narration is a spiritual exercise and a gift of grace. I love that because we want to be paying attention and we want to be paying attention to the good work that God is doing in our lives and to be able to tell that back in, you know, to other people and in the way we live. Well, thank you. And may the gift of grace be with you all. And here's to home. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.